Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Aaron Yuchwin McMorrow. Aaron holds a doctorate in policy planning and development from the University of Southern California, studied political and social thought at the University of Virginia, and served as the director of housing policy with the Los Angeles Coalition to End Hunger and Homelessness. She's also a certified yoga teacher, a cranial sacral therapist, and an entrepreneur living in Los Angeles. With Sounds True, Erin's the author of a new book. It's called Grounded, a fierce feminine guide to connecting with the soil and healing from the ground up. Erin has a brilliant and unusual way of combining intellectual study and knowledge with mystical experience and direct knowing. She seamlessly braids together an understanding of how healing the soil connects with healing our souls and also how together we can create a shared culture that is truly regenerative. Here's my conversation with Dr. Aaron Yuchwin McMorrow. To begin with, Aaron, and by way of introducing yourselves to our listeners, if you can share with us how you went from getting your doctorate in policy planning and development to having the kind of passionate interest you have in regenerative agriculture and specifically the health of the soil. What was that journey for you? Oh, it was an amazing journey. I definitely, when I graduated in 2013, I thought that I would probably be working for a city and that I would be working on urban sustainability things focusing on climate change, because that's what I wrote my dissertation about. And really, life just kind of took me at that moment. Um, I, I had kind of a, a path of, you know, I'm going to send out these resumes, I'm going to look in these major cities, this will be my life, this is where I'll, this is what I'll do. And as I was starting my job search, I actually started volunteering for a group called Kiss the Ground, which at the time was just a bunch of volunteers, like we weren't even a full organization yet. And now, um, now they're dear friends, and they're doing a lot of beautiful work in the world. They've been around for all this exact amount of time. Um, but as I started to get involved with them, I thought I was volunteering to help build urban gardens, which is it was just something I thought that I would enjoy while I was doing my job search. And we did do some of that, but that was the first I actually learned about the relationship between soil health and climate change and the the existence of microscopic life in the soil, which I never knew much about. I think I maybe vaguely knew or understood, but I was never a huge gardener. I certainly didn't know the details. And then when I came across this group of volunteers, I learned about this relationship. And I had been studying, as I said, I'd been studying climate change for years. And so it was quite a shock to realize that I didn't know anything about this, and that it was such a big part of the climate conversation. And at that time, you know, seven years ago, or more by now, um, it wasn't in the mainstream climate conversation, like the the soil carbon sequestration conversation has been built by the regenerative agriculture movement. Um, and along with now many uh, other organizations that have been working on different facets of this and finding each other over time. But um, 
I was I was shocked that there that I didn't even fully understand the carbon cycle. <laughs> I was like, that's a really important part of this. I didn't understand why it was such a wild um, blind spot in the conversation. And I went in and starting to do started to do more research, and I found that there were some real limitations on how soil health was studied. And also, I started to find as a person with a PhD, that uh, the the different parts of the bigger story were very, very, very siloed within academia. So it was tough to even piece the story together and do the research. Um, even though when you boil it down, like I try to boil it down to kind of a like a kindergarten level for people, because um, it's kind of the way I think about it now. But trying to piece it together through academic research was like you're looking you know somewhere over in ocean acidification and in one field in marine biology and then you're looking in uh and then soil studies and then you're looking in ecology and then you're looking in urban planning for something and um the the impetus for writing the book in the first place was to help boil that down for people because i was so shocked at what i found and uh and it's been really beautiful i've had this metamorphosis over these years because it's taken so many years of course i've grown as a person and my journey has been winding and at the same time uh, kiss the ground has continued on their journey and we're all learning and growing and they're also partnering with a, a number of beautiful organizations all over the world that are doing um, similar work and and it's uh, the conversation of course has expanded into um, healing with indigenous peoples and lands and uh, which in many ways is the beginning not the end <laughs> but I feel like we all started in some place and uh, and these stories all weave together and and there is a deep spiritual healing story within it as well finding our way back to the lands and that when you talk about my passion, I think it, I had a, I would call it a minor spiritual breakdown <laughs> in around 2013 when after we started, we got about six months to a year in. I really never found that dream job thing that I thought that I was going to be doing. But what I did instead was fall in love with this story. And I also uh, needed to find self-care after that many years of working in front of a computer in academia and then working to get this organization off the ground. I was really burnt out and that's when I did my um, go to Bali healing <laughs> adventure. And then a whole nother chapter starts for me around internal healing and uh, connecting with the divine feminine and connecting with the yin. And now that the book is here, all of these pieces have, have woven into the story. So that's most of it. You know, I want to congratulate you too, because you do a terrific job in Grounded in your book of introducing people who don't necessarily understand the connection between soil health and climate change and the carbon cycle and making it really crystal clear. I was so grateful for that. And I had a lot of understanding and insight that I didn't coming into the book just from my own ignorance. So I wonder here at the beginning of our conversation, illuminate our listeners mm. on the connection between soil health, climate change, and make sure they understand the carbon cycle. Sure. Thank you. It's one of my favorite things. I actually tried this for years to figure out how people, like I, I tried to kind of pitch it or, or just talk to people, my family, and explain it to figure out how people come to understand it because it was really confusing for me and everybody else in the beginning. So um, it was a practice thing. But now the way I see it is that in the basic terms, we've got sort of the land, like on the earth, we've got the land, we've got the water, and then let's call it the air, the atmosphere. It's very, you know, that's kindergarten level. Um, but there are cycles within this. So just like the water cycle, there's a carbon cycle. And um, the carbon basically is this tiny microscopic little thing that everything is made, every carbon-based thing is made out of. And it moves around in this cycle. And so while we've been thinking about climate change in terms of emissions for all this time, and of course, it's a huge part of the conversation, it's sort of a one-way, kind of linear way of thinking about things when if you scale back quite a bit further, you realize that everything in nature moves in cycles. So we're really talking about um, a broken part of the cycle. And what's happening is we've got so much carbon in the atmosphere, both from fossil fuel emissions, but also from all of the carbon that's been released from the soil. So I get to that. Um, but as as we've been doing industrial agriculture and a number of other practices that don't work well with the soil, we're, we're releasing all this soil into the, excuse me, all of this carbon into the atmosphere. And that is also now there's so much that it's spilling over into the oceans. The oceans actually have been absorbing this carbon 
for quite some time. And so we're actually much better off uh, as a species because the oceans have been doing us a great favor, but the oceans are actually becoming oversaturated now as well. And so the, it's starting to, the the reason we're having so, so much um, observable change right now is because that's how far this cycle has gone out of whack. And so what I say is um, to reset the cycle, you have to look at where the big broken pieces. And right now the big broken piece is really the, the earth part, the soil part. And that piece of the story uh, that, again, I had no idea. Gardeners know this. I realize when I talk to gardeners, they're like, oh yeah, the microbes in the soil and they, you know, they populate their microbes and all of these things. But I didn't know. So the soil is alive. There is microscopic life in the soil. And, uh, and that microscopic life is necessary along with the worms and, and everything else that goes on in the soil. It's a, it's a teeming, um, ecosystem inside of the soil and if we kill that ecosystem in any way and we disrupt it with pesticides we disrupt it with tilling we leave the soil bare we don't take care of the soil the way it thrives um then we actually release the 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 carbon in the soil then gets released into the atmosphere and the, the way that works in reverse is that plants basically bring it down in so they like suck it in <laughs> and then um and so when you talk about uh carbon sequestration that's really the natural thing that plants already do they suck it in it goes down uh through the roots and then down into the soil and then this microscopic life likes the carbon and so it so the soil will actually hold a tremendous amount of carbon and and, and carbon rich soil actually holds more clean water it helps and it helps aerate the soil and it's better for the plants and it's better for the nutrients it's how nature actually works, if you think of like the forest floor, you know, um, and it's compost, like that's a huge part of the conversation that is seems, you know, many people along my journey didn't know much about compost, neither did I. And it's just such an important part where we're like, why are we throwing away organic matter? Like, that's just madness. If you look at the carbon cycle and what's what's going on and what needs to happen. So that's the, the basic um, overview that I like to tell people. And in Grounded, you put a lot of emphasis on healing oh. the soil, that this is what we need to do. And I think for the everyday person, okay, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I have a compost bin. Oh. I compost food, but I'm not a gardener. I try to buy organic food. But beyond that, healing the soil feels out of reach to me. Oh. I'm not quite sure what am I going to do to help make sure there's healthy microbial life in the soil. Oh. Well, I think all of those things that you're doing are tremendous. And I think a lot of people, that's even those steps are still quite far from them. So I think even doing anything, composting at all, if you're in a city and just um, starting to participate in an urban compost um, system, which they, you have to look it up usually, you have to kind of like do a little bit of research, but it takes an extra step. Um, my, my agent actually started composting in New York City and realized that she could just drop off her food scraps when she picks up her vegetables um, at the same place. And so it was just a tiny bit of Googling to figure out uh, how she could make a big change actually in her, in what she does in the city. Um, and there's a whole scale, you know, if you're on, if you're in a rural area, you can create an entire compost like bin, you can create a worm bin, you can, um, you can use your own compost and share it with other people and, you know, grow organic food and all of this stuff. Um, but in terms of healing overall, I feel like the intention of, at a spiritual level, the intention is the most important thing and doing what you can wherever you are, because we're all in completely different physical situations. And uh, for me, it's a combination of using my, my urban green bin where we put yard waste and things like that we can now put food in there and then also we can have a little compost bin over here we've also got chickens we can feed our food scraps and everything we do that is intentionally giving back to mother earth i feel like is incredibly important and then there's also the the part where there are just things we can do in general like telling people the story i mean it's one of the biggest things is just awareness and light bulbs really go off for people so just talking about your compost or getting excited about it or, you know, sharing the book or sharing the story. Um, that's been a big part of my journey is people being lit up by how I got lit up in the first place by me sharing my excitement. And then they're like, this is fascinating. And then, you know, Kiss the Grounds documentary comes out and the, and the story kind of spreads. And as that goes on, I think that's going to be one of the most important things about healing collectively. Um, and also, like I said, healing with uh, indigenous peoples and lands is, is really important. And and the, the journey that we've been on just in the last year, um, 
this this the spiritual connection back to nature, the story of the beginning, you know, I think when I use the word grounded and I'm talking about the root chakra um, or I'm using that metaphor, it's, there's sort of a whole body uh, healing thing that's going on here. And so there's also that one piece of just putting your feet on the earth. Um, even if you're in a, in an urban center, you can find a park hopefully. Um, but trying to do that more like once a day, if you can, because again, I've talked to people, I, I know my own experience, it has been incredibly healing for me. And, uh, and it doesn't even have to be at, like a scientific reason, like I'm air quoting, like scientific reason why it just, it affects our being. Um, and everybody I know that's done it has agreed with me and taking more time, you know, if you have the access to like, go camping or something like literally lay on the earth, I find that it's actually deeply healing to me and it, it all of these things work together. So Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now you mentioned uh, our root chakra, and in the very first few sentences of the book Grounded, you write, "The root of the climate crisis is an invitation to heal our individual and collective root chakra." So, uh, for people who are like, "What? The root of the <laughs> climate crisis has something to do with an energy center that's right. down?" in the lowest part of my torso. Help me understand how you see this connection. Yeah, this is actually where uh, that yoga teacher training moment in my life where it kicked in. So I was really doing yoga for stress relief, you know, when I was in school. And then um, I had this most phenomenal teacher. And I also got to leave the country and just be um, elsewhere and just just try on something completely different. And that's when I really started to learn about the root chakra and learn about the chakra system. And as I describe in the book, I was in a very academic, like heady place at the time. So this was really unusual for me and it it kind of stretched me. Um, But we spent a long time just finding our feet in, in these beginning exercises. And then when my teacher was speaking about rooting down energetically and connecting to nature, I was already obsessed with soil at this time. So that connection started to weave through me. And um, and the notion of now that talking about the masculine and the feminine, I was just exposed to the notion of the divine feminine at that time because, um, because of, kind of yin yoga and the idea of doing really long, slow poses to um, to actually release, it was not a mode that I was in, which is why I was so stressed out. And it's why I've, you know, I had to sort of go do something totally different. So as I relaxed into the energy of the yin, this is where I sort of stumbled onto the tantric path. And I did not know <laughs> that's what I was doing at the time. Um, and I didn't know necessarily that, I mean, even the, the chakra system was pretty woo for me at the time. And so um, relaxing both into that notion of the divine feminine, I started to slowly drop into the divine feminine metaphor, which is the soil, which I did not realize for probably until four years into the book. Like I had written a whole book (laughs) about soil and all of these things and hadn't fully put it together because the metaphor is that, you know, you, you part the soil, plant the seed, place the seed inside, cover the soil, the seed gestates. So life gestates and then life is born. And so it's the um, it's the the mother, the divine feminine metaphor. It all goes together. And um, so this is sort of where I land. But in the very beginning, when I was first learning about the root chakra, it was just like, find your feet, find the earth, connect to the breath. And as I started to do that, I just started to feel that this rootedness, um, this sense of what I now know is the the archetype of the root chakra is about foundation, safety, home. And um, it's actually a masculine energy that holds the sacral chakra. And so um, it's the masculine feminine in our first like lower two chakras that have really been the major archetypal centers of my entire journey for this entire time. And the first thing I did was find my feet. And so I think it's really beautiful that I went from this like super academic, like crusty, focusing on carbon, you know, <laughs> trying to learn, trying to read academic papers about carbon and then, and then having life guide me into actually settling into the metaphor of the soil and the energetic element of what I was doing. And that's really what's guided my entire journey. You write in Grounded, coming out of the woo closet <laughs> has been my most challenging obstacle and my greatest opportunity. Mm. And I wanted to talk some about that because, yeah. you know, here you have this PhD mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, urban planning. And I think sometimes academic training can actually make it harder for us in certain ways 
to open and grow. And yet at the same time here, you've gone on this journey and you've created an integration within yourself. And I want to understand more about that. What was required for you to come out of the woo closet Mm -hmm. and how have you integrated that with your academic background? Yeah, that's been still to this moment. This is a huge part of my journey, even in in sharing the book now that it's out there. It has many different audiences, right? And I have um, academic colleagues still who are still a little confused about what I'm doing. <laughs> and then I have, um, and then I have a spiritual community uh, that is also still trying to figure out the the soil part or like why it's interesting or the climate part. You know, all of these these different pieces are all facets of my life that I've been integrating for all of this time. But yeah, I, I joke that I'm I'm one of these people that is like a privileged woman has breakdown. Like that is kind of the um, the initiation that occurred in 2013. And it, like I said, it's like I had this plan for my life. Like so many people, I had this plan for my life. I had this degree. I thought I knew who I was based on the degree. And also the training, like you said, the training is incredibly rigorous. Um, it's also very, it's not physical at all. It's very much in the mind. And so um, also it, it can be very stressful. And so we can end up at a burnout phase, which is what I did. And and so basically at that point in my journey, the biggest thing, the breakdown mostly was about shedding that identity of who I thought I was and really facing like a lot of kickback um, socially and from every direction because everyone around me thought they knew who I was as well. And that can be, that's a huge part, I think, of most people's spiritual journeys is shedding identities and just allowing evolution, you know, and allowing change. And, and also, I would say, you know, academia isn't the most friendly place for um, spiritual conversation, like maybe in in some fields, yes, um, some fields more than others, and some institutions more than others. But uh, in my experience was that it was this conversation was pretty frowned upon, especially back in 2013, when I started. And um, I think for me, it's really required me to claim to claim my power. One of the places I started also in, in Bali to learn about was um, my boundaries and owning my power. And uh, that's when I realized that I was, I was externalizing my value and my worth in almost every way in my life. And this is where a lot of people start in a spiritual journey as well. We're like, we've checked all the boxes, we're doing all the things um, and it's empty. There's something is not, something is not lining up. And also then at the same time being guided by the hand of spirit, which I would say by now is very clearly what was going on in my life at the time. It was totally bewildering. But um, now when I look back, I'm like, what what a gift. I mean, I I landed exactly where I needed to do the healing I needed to do within myself and then share that healing journey. And I do healing work now with clients and friends and sharing that gift. And then being able to wrap that all together with uh, this very heady topic. And even the process of putting a book together and trying to explain it to people, even, you know, like the, the whole process of pitching a book or putting a proposal together, like people, so many people were like, these things don't go together. Like, I don't understand what you're trying to do here. And, and then I found some, some people who got it. And, and that journey of, helping to unfurl that for so many people in my life who've been walking with me and watching me and growing with me. And then now for other people that I haven't met yet, people that are now receiving the book, uh, this is really, uh, so far the feedback that I've gotten is this is really helpful and healing for people who are facing the same kind of woo closet challenge where uh, we may, maybe we feel like we can't we can't, we can't go on that journey because what will people think, you know, or we can't talk about it out loud. There are a lot of, um, in the woo closet people, I think at the beginning of my journey where it's like, yeah, we, we know this, we kind of like have our tarot cards and stuff in secret, but, um, but what happens when we actually step forward and share the healing journey? And it takes a lot of courage and, and it, it took me on all kinds of adventures. And now I feel, I'm still, it's still part of my journey and, and I feel very, very confident and powerful in it as well. Well, I want to thank you, Erin, for uh, speaking from that place of your own inner knowing, the hand of spirit tapping you on the shoulder. I think part of the reason I love to host these conversations is I want to give listeners permission 
to lead with their brave hearts and their own inner knowing and not hold back. So I think examples like you are really important. So thank you. Now, in terms of putting these two conversations together, write in the book, the destruction of the soil and the destruction of the feminine go hand in hand. So for someone who says, what? Like I was with you in terms of the relationship between having unhealthy soil and the climate crisis. And I was with you in terms of us not honoring the divine feminine in the world. But how do you put these two into one woven together relationship? Mm. Again, it's uh, it's macro and micro, like everything. And that's been a major theme in my journey. Um, it's how we are interacting with the feminine within ourselves. So back to my sort of breakdown Bali moment and my first time finding my feet and my first time finding the feminine, it was the feminine, the healing, the feminine in myself coming out of a, a very sort of hyper-masculine or even toxic masculine part of academia um, that, that yin yoga, for example, was what helped me feel good in my body. So there's this sort of weaving connection right there. And then, I, and then opening that way in my body and healing my own inner self is what helped me understand the bigger picture of what I was writing about. It helped me put things together that I wasn't going to put together in my mind only. Um, so that even within my own little story, there's that. And then of course, there's the divine feminine metaphor and the great mother metaphor. So if you're looking at the soil as the great mother from, from which all life springs, and there's a, a lot of beautiful conversation around um, the great creatrix, the great, you know, the great void, um, the chaos from where all possibility springs. Uh, I have a lot of conversation about that in the book as well. And the dark goddess, the womb, you know, the darkness, the the healing power of the darkness, the healing power of the yin that I feel has been um, uh, deeply damaged in our Western narratives, pretty much. And so um, I go pretty deeply into that as well, where, you know, we're going, we're healing the divine feminine, we're also healing the divine masculine at the same time. And that's, that's a whole nother conversation, but focusing on the feminine first and really dropping into this, the, the, the soil metaphor, then it's like, okay, wait a second. Like we, we have, you know, part of this uh, 2017, we had the Me Too movement, right? While I was writing the book and um, obviously it was a profound societal change, but also like a, a profound change within me. And, and I was writing the book at the same time. And I started to bump in at that moment. I started to bump into this kind of like patriarchy, witch wound conversation where it's like, why, where was my feminine? What happened? You know, how did I end up here? And, and why were parts of academia so toxic? And, and why was I so burnt out? And why do I feel like I need to externalize all my power? Like, what is happening here? And, um, and at the same time, I'm watching, you know, there's like, we do fracking and mountaintop mining and things like this, where the metaphor is almost exact. It's like, we're, we're, harming, you know, there's rape metaphors at the base of, of Western civilization. You know, I talk about Zeus and, um, and that whole rewriting of the goddess mythology. And then we essentially effectively are, are we raping the land in so many ways. And then we also have this incredible violence against women and girls around the world. And, um, and also, if you look at the climate conversation, Specifically, it's like empowering women and girls in terms of education and um, reproductive access and access to education is is incredibly helpful just in, in the like scientific sense of climate change and just um, how how well women fare when they have education and how they take care of their families, their bodies, their communities, and how they take care of the land and how they take care of small lot farms and then how they grow food. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. It's just, it's all one big thing now in my mind. It's lots of little pieces. Once again, the experience that I had in academia was everything siloed out. And so it's like, there are all these pieces and they all kind of obviously go together in the end, but you've got to kind of um, untangle that tendency to silo everything out, right? And, and be like, no, this belongs here and this belongs here and this is a different conversation and you know, this is where this goes because we can't solve the problem that way. I mean, that's what we've been doing. And I have actually also a, a lot of uh, friend feedback that 
where they, they finally read the book and they're like, oh my God, it's so obvious. <laughs> it's so obvious. It all goes together. I can't believe I've been reading about all of this goddess stuff over here and the soil health climate stuff over here. And I, I never put the two things together. And the number of people who have never heard of the great mother metaphor, right? Like life gestating and then the cycles of nature and the way it connects really then obviously to like the, the seed cycle metaphor of the moon and the cycles of menstruation. It all, you know, this has been around forever and we just mostly have forgotten in Western culture. So it's not shocking. I think that we're in a climate crisis or we're in an environmental crisis because we're really off kilter with the way we think about these things. Now, Aaron, you, you talked and suggested this very simple practice of putting your feet. I presumed, you know, you were talking about bare feet, your bare feet on the earth, stepping out onto the earth. So let's just imagine this together. And as our listeners do that, they go, okay, I can do that. That's not that big a deal. I can do that where I live. What are they doing now that their bare feet are on the earth and they're standing there? Are they imagining something, thinking about something, feeling something? Yeah, I mean, they, they can really do anything, but I, I would suggest as much as possible as in like a meditation dropping in, dropping into the body, dropping into the present moment, maybe inviting oneself into the present moment. So I like to practice uh, inviting whatever else was going on before that moment to be outside of the space and to just be where I am. And then also just feeling, like literally feeling the sensations in the bottom of the feet with the the bare feet, with the soil, just feeling what that feels like. And often, again, in our heady world, uh, we don't realize that we're not in our bodies at all. And so, you know, we're off somewhere thinking about the future or the past or some other thing. When we stop and put our feet on the earth, it's a moment to reconnect to ourselves and then reconnect to the moment. And then, and also just pull into the body and actually be where we are by feeling into our sensations. And then if you want to go further, I love doing a meditation where I drop roots into the ground. And you can do this from your feet or from your tailbone. If you're lying down, you do it however you want. But just dropping, imagining dropping roots, even if I'm indoors, um, into deep, rich, fertile, healthy soil. And then I can scan my body for anything that doesn't serve and allow it to fall away out through my roots. And I can draw up any kind of nourishment that I feel like I need and like energetic nourishment through these imaginary roots into my body. Um, and it's just a reminder that we don't have to carry anything around. And also that this great mother energy doesn't want us to, you know, she composts like she actually she would love for us to release anything that we're carrying and to draw up nourishment from her because that's what she does. That's, you know, that's her thing. So I do that quite often. Um, anytime I feel like I'm a little spun out or a little bit stressed, I stay pretty unstressed overall now because I have these practices and, and I don't, I'm, I'm unwilling to stay in the space where I'm out in, in my head all the time. I'm just like, no, no, to feet on the earth, <laughs> take some breaths. Um, so it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. I quite like that image of our own roots growing down below us. That's very helpful. Thank you. You also offer in the book a centering type of practice, working with the central axis of the body. And I wonder if you can describe that for our listeners. Yeah, thank you. I also, I, I learned this very early, the very beginning uh, in Bali, again, like thanks to my teacher out there, was putting our feet on the ground and then is grounding and centering. So feet on the ground and then just breathing into that central axis. So imagining there's a bright line moving through your body, out through the top of your head to the universe and down to the center of the earth, grounding you. And I use this in yoga all the time because it's actually how I learned how to teach yoga rather than alignment being like, put your left hand here, stick your leg over here, being like, breathe into, like find your feet first and then breathe into that central axis. And it's there in every pose. You can be doing any kind of, you can be standing on your foot or whatever, and you will always have a central axis. And it shows up also in like martial arts. It shows up in dance, like in tango. There's a central axis to everything, which is actually really beautiful when you're talking about the divine feminine and the masculine as well, they can kind of dance around the central axis. And we always have this center. I also find it really, um, really powerful if I'm going to go into something like give a talk or something like that, to find that center before I walk into a room. Um, and also, it's really helpful because I can feel when I'm off center at any point, if I'm like, whoa, my energy is way over here, I can call myself back in and uh, it helps me. So I have this practice that's strong enough that I, I can actually tell if I'm off center. 
So that's, I think, really powerful. If you do it just a little bit every day, you'll get to the point where you'll kind of always be in your center. Okay. Now, a couple of times you've mentioned the divine feminine and the divine masculine and how we can heal both the divine feminine. And you said at some point we might get to talk about healing the divine masculine and that points now. But my question is when I hear those words, divine feminine, divine masculine, there's a part of me that goes, well, I don't know if I know exactly what Aaron's talking about. Right. What exact, what is she really talking about? Are these just like mythic ideas of our highest feminine and masculine powers? Like, what is she actually referring to here? Yeah, I think of them, I learned them in the most simple way. Actually, a wonderful uh, tarot teacher called Lindsay Mack, and the way she describes it is the divine masculine is like the mountain energy. So it's um, it's strong, it's huge, it stays there, it's got its own power. And then the divine feminine energy is like the ocean. So it's oceanic power and um, it's fluid, it's the womb, it's creativity, uh, it's emotion. And those two energies are equally powerful and they dance together, they, they play together throughout all of nature. Erin, I'm gonna, I'm gonna circle back for a moment about the aliveness of the soil. Because when I started reflecting on that as I was reading Grounded, and I was thinking about the microbes that live in the soil, at least they live in healthy soil, part of what you point out is the role that fungi, the role that a mushroom-type creature plays in healthy soil. And I thought this was so interesting. And I wonder if you can explain that to our listeners the role of fungi in healthy soil. Sure. I, the mushrooms are my favorite in the world, my favorite creatures, whatever they are. Um, so yeah, this was mind-blowing when I learned this as well. So I was trying to comprehend the way that the plant kind of breathes and the way that carbon moves in the plant cycle. And then I found out that Basically, the the roots are, you know, what we think of as a root system, we can we can actually be thinking of what is mycorrhizal fungi. It's more like it's a bigger kind of web. Um, And I realized the roots can actually be smaller and you imagine them kind of going down under the soil surface. I'm actually doing this with my hands right now. You can't see, but you have the little roots going down under the soil surface. And then I found out that um, the, the mycorrhizal fungi attaches to the roots and and interacts with all of this incredible life in the soil. So it's kind of like a middleman and plants need this. They can't quite, their roots don't do it themselves. There's this symbiotic relationship that has evolved in nature for all of time. And uh, so there are these like partners and they are everywhere and they're huge. And this these, these are one of the major things that we're doing when we are, when we say destroying life in the soil, it's killing the mycorrhizal fungi. Um, And so when they're healthy and they're alive, they're helping barter this incredible uh, ecosystem with like, you know, nematodes and the worms and all the things. And they also help um, space out the air. So you have a little bit more air in the soil. If you are familiar with healthy soil, if you think about holding what what seems like healthy soil, it's going to be dark and rich because it's going to have carbon in it and it's going to have life in it. It's going to be a little bit wet and it's going to have these, um, these string like things, you know, these, this mycorrhizal fungi. And if you really look at it, it's like, there's a whole party going on down there. <laughs> you know. And that's, if you think about the forest floor in a place that's really healthy, like I think of the Oregon, you know, the, the deep, deep um, sort of composting, ever composting, ever turning over forest floor. And you also think about mushrooms. They're these like um, these edge runners and these um, Paul Stamets talks a lot about the, them being like sentient edge runners. And so they're aware of our footprints, like that, you know, as we walk by, they're aware of us. So there's also this magic to it. And I mean, I think mushrooms are spectacularly magical and they, they have these funny personalities too. The ones that, you know, pop up and we think of as like classic mushrooms with the toadstool head and whatever. Um, they just like, they're such a part of the compost story, the decomposition story, the life under the soil. Um, I think nerding out about this is really fun. And the mushroom people, there are just now I've learned there are just communities full of absolute avid mushroom enthusiasts of all kinds, like edible mushrooms, all the mushrooms. Um, so you can get more into that if, if that sounds exciting. <laughs> now, you write in the book that tragically we've unwittingly managed to kill more than half of the mycorrhizal fungi in the world. And I had a moment when I read that, I was like, really? We've we've managed to kill more than half of this 
special fungi? How have we done that? Yeah, I mean, this is from the studies that I've looked at. And actually, the regenerative agriculture movement has done a great job of, of talking about this and explaining it. And the way I understand it is that these delicate little tendrils, like they, they like life in a certain way, right? If you do things like cut through them, you know, they'll, you'll, you'll kill them, you'll harm them. And so if you look at the way we're doing industrial agriculture, for example, we do a tremendous amount of tilling the soil. So there's a lot of cutting up the soil um, and killing that really delicate nature, that really delicate balance, if you think of like forest floor. And then we try to, we replace it with synthetic replacements or we replace nutrients and things with synthetic replacements. But it doesn't, if you touch that soil, it's, you can feel that it's not, it doesn't have that life running through it. it it's becoming more and more like dust. Um, and then also pesticides, like certain, you know, it's it's poison. You don't want to poison the bottom of the food chain is the way that I, I learned about it in the beginning. It's like, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Like if we can work with the soil in the way that it likes to be worked with, and there are more and more and more examples of this now of like successful um, you know, ways of permaculture and different ways of farming and just regenerative agriculture itself, um, tending to the soil first, rather than uh, this sort of more extractive method that we have now that's doing increasing amounts of harm to the soil. And that's where all of our, that's where all of our fungi friends are going, sadly. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned tilling the soil as being quite destructive, but if we're trying to grow a massive amount, industrial agriculture, is there really a way to create the amount of food people need without doing something like tilling the soil? Yeah, and I think I don't. there's actually something that's come through in the regenerative agriculture movement that not all tilling is necessarily bad. There are ways to... Um, there, there are ways to do alternative types of things and there are ways to till less and there are ways to rotate crops. There are all kinds of ways to approach these things that are not fully going from, say, full-on industrial agriculture straight to everyone has a permaculture lot, right? There's, there's a whole spectrum of things that go on here um, to support the food system. And we do, we have a modern food system now. So we can't just completely, um, you know, pick that up and throw it out the window and, and expect to feed everybody. There's, there's a lot going on there. Um, at the same time, small lot farms and small lot food production is, is way more productive than we think. And I, the Rodale study is a really beautiful example of um, a long-term study of looking at health in the soil and production of food over time. And that, and actually over the longer term, if we uh, take care of the soil, it gives us better returns financially. It's just a longer runway. And so that's why some of these much longer studies are um, are more useful because some of the studies that like the soil science studies um, that we were looking at back seven years ago um, were much shorter timelines. And so food production, you're trying to do math about food production. And basically what I understand that the regenerative agriculture movement has come to put together is there are many, many, many alternatives and ways to feed people. And um, there are way more, let's see, there are way healthier ways to heal with the soil and still create a lot of food. And on top of that, the healing aspect of actually just having our own like small lots and not transporting as much food is also really important for climate change. Um, so it's a whole combination of things. I hope, is that clear? It is. It, it is. One of the uh, suggestions you offer in Grounded is that people could also explore the power of growing some of their own food. Mm. And you go so far as to say growing our own food is an act of revolution. <laughs> uh, strong statement. How do you see it as an act of revolution? Well, there's a beautiful piece about autonomy and freedom um, around growing our own food. So if we imagine, you know, we've all been through a pretty wild year and then some so far, and it's still going, where our systems are changing rapidly, you know, things are happening. And um, the way that we've been doing things for a long time, is clearly not working. We've got a lot of problems and a lot of things to, to adjust to. And so what a lot of people have been doing is either moving out of the city or within the city where they are, like just starting to have a little plot just to actually feel one to feel better and to have something to do that's really enjoyable and good for you. 
Um, but also to feel this sense of autonomy, like not being wedded to huge industrial systems for our survival. That's also a root chakra conversation around foundation, survival, home, um, security, that having, you know, even just having like a lemon tree that produces lemons outside of our our home, it's an incredibly securing feeling that I don't have to go pay money for this. I don't have to go, um, I don't have to rely on somebody else or on a system. And certainly we have the idea of food shortages or the ideas of, you know, uh, if the trucks stop running for some reason or any of these, like this very delicate balance of things that have brought food to the grocery stores for all this time, um, there are ways to make our systems way more robust by relying more on our local centers in, in every way. And food is basically the, the most foundational way. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned, Erin, that even some of your friends who have read now the book Grounded have said, you God, I didn't really put these two things together. Mm-hmm. I didn't put on the one hand the climate crisis and the work you're doing with creating healthy soil and healthy microbiomes in the soil. I didn't really put that together with mm. the yoga practices of breathing up the central axis and uh, claiming the power of the divine feminine and balance with the masculine and putting it all into one picture. And I noticed even during this conversation, I noticed myself being a little like these two things feel different to me, but I know they're connected, but I kind of feel they are, but I can't quite explain it. So I wonder if you could speak more to that, to that this moment in time where people like your friends and, and me in this moment, listening to our conversation, are trying to find this full, integrated, braided way of understanding the inner and the outer. Oh, I love that you just said braided. It made me think of the beautiful book, Braiding Sweetgrass. And what actually just came to my mind is um, in terms of it coming home in that metaphor, I every time come back to this idea of indigenous peoples and lands. And obviously we've had um, a lot of upheaval in the last year and some about uh, our history, our shared history and this intergenerational trauma that um, is worldwide with colonization and um, the original way, and maybe not original, but the the way that for hundreds of years and then even thousands of years, um, conquest has been part of our human history. And we're all living with that somatic um, reality in our bodies. And so, so many of us are on that healing journey. And then if you really look at it, so much of it has to do with connection to the land. And uh, if you look at origin stories and original stories, and if we're talking about spiritual growth, it's like indigenous cultures all over the world for all of time have honored the great mother and uh, the soil as the great mother and this idea of the kind of the great void uh, from which everything springs. And that spiritually, that uh, physically and practically was severely damaged over the last 5,000 years. And so we have um, broken origin stories and we have origin stories of violence. And then we've lived it out. We live it out by destroying the soil in all kinds of ways. We live it out by having a broken food system. We've lived it out through colonization and slavery. Um, It also gets to the notion of private property, which I bring up, uh, which I found that was at the bottom of when I did years of work on the right to housing and homelessness. I was like, why can't we figure this out? Once again, just intellectually, I was like, how can, how is it that all of humanity can't solve this problem? Like, why can't we do this? What is there? And what I found at the bottom of this kind of like muck was um, the concept of private property. There was no way to get around it intellectually. And that just sat there with me for years, and and I never knew. I kind of had I had to leave it as an intellectual pursuit. I didn't couldn't get any further until it came all the way back around when I bumped into goddess history, <laughs> which is not ever something that I thought was going to happen. But um, it was like when I was dealing with soil carbon sequestration, I realized, and I, and I was going to give talks about it. I realized I couldn't talk about it without talking about patriarchy. And then I started digging into patriarchy and then I bumped into goddess history. And I was like, what is goddess history? Like what? I had no idea. I had no idea. And then um, I started digging into goddess history. And then I started learning about this destruction of the origin story of the great mother. And that actually brought me to connection with indigenous peoples and lands where I'm like, oh my God, humans all over the world have been working with the cycles of nature forever and telling 
loving origin stories about uh, the great mother and the divine feminine and the divine masculine in whatever language. These energies are universal. And the fact that it's um, so true from the macro to the micro in my own experience, my own personal healing journey, paralleling what I see happening at the macro level and the systemic level and having studied institutions and watching our institutions do what they're doing right now, um, it, it actually all makes perfect sense to me. It's like, of course, if we if we come up with destructive origin stories and then we live out something like, <clears throat> excuse me, colonization and all of this environmental destruction, we're living out what we said we were going to do, you know, and it's all one big system. And so if we're living that out on the collective, we're going to have something like climate change. And if you're living that out in the individual level, you're, you're, you're probably not going to feel very good. You might, you know, have a lot of stress. You might be kind of in a breakdown state or anxiety or any of the things that I had going on in the beginning. So that's how I see it. Does that, does that make sense? It does. And it's helpful. And I'm, I'm curious to know more in your own biography mm. with your own intergenerational traumatic human history, mm. one that we all have, how you were able to create a level of rooted healing mm for yourself that's informing you and your work now? Yeah, um, I started looking at my matrilineal line and my patrilineal line, and there's still, there's still a lot to do. But if along my maternal line, my mom is Chinese and uh, her, her parents lived in Taiwan, but left um, right before the cu Cultural Revolution. And so their families were in China. And I'm actually just starting to get to a place where I think I might, my grandmother might have a Mongolian background. It's right around in the same area. And I'm, I'm looking into that, but I've been reflecting and healing a lot also, particularly on the maternal line, there's something very powerful about the womb to womb to womb um, intergenerational passing on trauma or healing. And so I'm looking at this particularly, especially being in the US. And so we have then generations, again, of movement, right, or immigration or or even being stolen or taken from land, like people being moved from their land. Um, and I'm working all the way back with that, like the idea of like Mongolian tribal um, uh, spirituality and connection to the land that's there and then northern china and then taiwan and then like each generation being moved and of a different really culture um that root chakra trauma that sense of um upsetting that connection to the land to our mothers to our people to our to our cultures to our tribes um that will deeply affect that root energy and so i think that's why i ended up at this in this root conversation in Bali one day, you know, because I had this healing to do around, you know, when you're, when your root chakra isn't aligned and balanced, um, that's when you're not owning your power, right? And we're giving our power away and externalizing our power. And the way we do it collectively is in uh, the most oppressive nature of capitalism. And so uh, it, that has been my, the thread. And then on the other side, we have like Celtic magic and, um, and I learned learning about witches and um, and also learning about the Catholic Church and uh, a lot of the abuse and the things that have come through that side and and the stories that have been passed down through organized religion. Like that's actually where the first thread came from. And now I'm working all the way around back to the maternal line healing. So uh, it's never ending. There's quite a bit. And then and then that leads to beautiful conversations with everybody because as we were in the deep in these race race conversations, which we still are, the concept of race at all. But then everybody has a story about their family, their background, where they came from, the mix. Like uh, it's such a nuanced conversation, and there's a, a beautiful humanity and healing that's coming, and also having us look at the the trauma that's been passed down and how it's showing up in the world right now, and how it's showing up. Um, in our in our society, in our economy, the way we think about things, the way people speak about things, are in, embedded in our language, you know. Um, so all of that healing is. I think we're just at the very beginning collectively. <laughs> this mm -hmm. healing, and so am I. Now, there's one more thing I want to ask you about, Aaron, because you know, in this conversation, I'm so impressed by how articulate you are, mm -hmm. and how courageous you are. And in the book, Grounded, you share a bit about what it took for you to liberate the power of your voice, mm. that it wasn't just there, that you had to go through a journey for that to happen. And I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that, what you had to go through to find the power of your voice. 
Thank you. I was choked up a little bit. Just that's that's actually the energetic response um, to that voice conversation. Um, you know, we literally say choke up. But so in 2018, so I had been writing this book for a while. By that point, I I was in a plant medicine ceremony, and I was invited by a guide to um, to sing, and I couldn't. I literally couldn't. Like it, nothing would come out, and uh, and I ended up just weeping. It just cracked something open in me, and um, I ended up weeping and weeping and weeping, and realized that I had a deeply suppressed desire to sing. This actually gets back to that potentially Mongolian roots of like. Um, throat singing, like ancestral throat singing. I'm now being drawn to um, like all sorts of ancestral uh, expression through voice and songs. That's that's such an ancient part and powerful part of plant medicine ceremonies all over the world and and all of indigenous wisdom. And the throat is so incredibly important. So that was that was 2018. And the next talk I gave was about patriarchy, actually. And and one of the first things that happened is as I used the word, because I knew I had to, it was terrifying, <laughs> terrifying to say that word, actually, at the time. And um, I would feel like a hand around my throat. And I talked about this in the book. And it was the craziest feeling. But it was like, this is some kind of somatic memory. And then I shared that it was groups of women, and lots of women were feeling the same thing. And so we're back to this kind of like witch wound, you know, we were talking about also intergenerational trauma and like in Europe, for example, and witch hunts and this, like this stuff is still real in our bodies. And the fear of expressing through that is tremendous. And so um, I've still been, I'm still, I still, I have a voice coach now. Um, I work on voice every single day. I work on making all kinds of sounds because there is this sense of uh, not, you can't make certain sounds, you know, or it has to sound good in this way. It was just all of these stories from thousands of years of like why I can't do this, say this, make this noise, be this way. Um, so unlocking the throat has just been, it's been everything in terms of I mean, literally writing a book. It's our communication center, right? It's our truth center, being in our truth. Um, and so, and, and not allowing me to then give away my power in that way where I, where I would now, I would never sort of apologize if I didn't mean it now or any of these things that seem small um, really standing in my truth in every moment is the critical part. And, and now here we are talking about the book. And so it's been, it's been really incredible. And what would you say, Aaron, to someone who's listening, who's in the middle of that journey mm. of liberating their voice and they want to go further? Oh, I just say, keep going, um, lean into it, invest in it, get, get a guide, a coach. You'll, you'll, as soon as you open up to it, somebody will show up, the right person and just keep going, keep practicing. And like, if it requires crying through it, cry through it. If it requires um, yelling and screaming through it, do that. Whatever it takes, it's worth it. And uh, and it's never ending. I think collectively we have such a huge throat chakra project right now um, that that it's going to take all of us. And the more you free yourself, the more you free other people. The more you share. And I have lots of people have hired my my vocal guide woman. She's not just a coach, you know. She's a she's a spiritual guide, and um, they just see me opening up this way and sharing, you know, even on social media and stuff like that. It's sharing the truth, sharing poetry. So uh, there's no end to the joy. And singing is just one of the most powerful and deeply healing um, things that we have as humans. So just give yourself that gift. All right. Finally, Aaron, there's a quote on your website. The hour calls for optimism. We'll save <laughs> pessimism for better times. Uh, <laughs> and what I want to know here, your optimistic vision of... Mm where we're going as a collective? Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's such a beautiful question. I feel incredibly optimistic. I don't really have much pessimism left at all. It's pretty much gone. I feel like this journey is, uh, it's, it's within all of us in a way it's sort of written. And so we actually are so much more safe than we realize. And when I started this book, I didn't feel safe at all. I started it on a mission to like save everybody and everything in whatever way I could, because I thought we were bound for utter destruction. And certainly, you know, lots of things get to be worked on and we get, we get to do a lot of healing. And it's all right here for us. Like Mother Nature heals so fast um, when we work with her. And so I think as soon as we can start telling the story to each other and and dropping into our own 
internal individual. We're continuing on with this intergenerational healing and the societal healing that we're already doing, accelerating it even, and then working together, which I already see. One thing is that I live in a world of people who are doing these incredible projects and, and you know, connecting up healthy food and gardens and things with people who don't have food and, and creating, you know, regenerative farms all over, like working on the policy. Everybody, everybody I know has some hand in creating the new world. And it's so beautiful. And everybody that starts working on it suddenly feels like fulfilled and happy and thrilled. And like, we're doing the right thing that we're walking the path of alignment and and it feels better for us individually it feels better collectively we're creating new systems like we don't have to live well we're just not going to live under these systems that aren't working anymore so being a hand in in just creating that we don't know for sure what it's going to look like but it's it's beautiful (laughs) it's it's regenerative and it's uh, even a regenerative economy that's like Everything we create, every say product is um, is regenerative. So it comes from the earth. It can be compostable or whatever it is. And the way that we exchange money around it or whatever system we have is in highest service to all. And because we're doing our work around it, we can work with that. And so I think there's such a tremendous um, opportunity as to what we're going to create in the next even like 50 years. You know, it's spectacular. <laughs> I've been speaking with Dr. Erin Yujwin McMorrow. She's the author of the new book, What Sounds True, Grounded, a fierce feminine guide to connecting to the soil and healing from the ground up. Uh, Thank you so much for a conversation that in and of itself, I feel was regenerative. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.